0: Hi, everybody. My name is Jim Hempel. Welcome to this panel on the Sound of West Side Story. I'm very pleased to introduce a terrific group of guests we've got here, starting with re-recording mixer, sound designer, and supervising sound editor, Gary Rydstrom, supervising sound editor, Brian Chumney, re-recording mixer, Andy Nelson, sound mixer, Todd Maitland, and the film's music mixer, Sean Murphy. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So uh, one of the things I really loved about the movie, and I'm not, I don't even know exactly how Spielberg did it or how you guys pulled this off, but it's the fact that it really delivers the satisfactions of a, you know, classical musical, but also feels very immediate and fresh and new. Uh, it's, it's really an incredible balance that you guys struck. And I'm curious, I guess, just to start things off, to hear from everybody, uh, how you approached staying true to the kind of traditional sound of musicals while also pushing the envelope a little bit. And I guess we can start with, we'll start with you, Gary.
1: Oh, well, I I actually, it, it's very old fashioned in a way because it's a musical in the classic sense, but, and I can brag about this because I didn't really have anything to do with it, but the sound of the music itself, the singing, the music, the, the score is, is as good as it's ever been. So, I mean, that approach, you know, the singer's, Did a beautiful job. It it felt like they were singing on the set uh, when they often weren't the transitions into and out of songs, which is often, you know, what people worry about in musicals. How do you get into a song? How do you get out of a song? We're just perfect. Um, And I'm really proud of that. Again, I can say that because I, I didn't do that. All the rest of these people did that part of it. But that that part was beautifully done as well as I've ever heard.
0: Well, Sean, maybe you could talk a little bit about that from the uh, the music point of view, because I sort of extending to that. That's the way I felt hearing the music. I watched the movie last night at the Zanuck Theater in Fox, and the way the music enveloped me. I mean, again, it felt very traditional in the best sense, but also didn't feel old fashioned.
2: Right. Uh, well, I think in terms of what Gary was saying and tr- making the transition smooth, that was a that we, we were thinking about that right from the get go. Uh, how can we pre-record our vocals? Uh, so that we had the best flexibility to match what Todd was doing on set. And, it, and even though at first the word was we weren't going to necessarily have any song vocals performed on set live, of course, we all knew that wasn't going to be the case. So uh, uh, so we were preparing ourselves to have to intercut between pre-record vocals and live production and potentially even post-scoring post, uh, uh, overdub vocals. And because of that, we recorded the vocals with several different microphones, although we didn't always wind up using all of that flexibility. We had it. And the whole idea was that we would make it as easy for Andy to match when he got into the final dub as possible, so that the transition from a pre-recorded vocal to a production vocal to a production dialogue would be absolutely seamless. And I think that was accomplished. Um, and the other part of it was, I think with the, the music recording, the, even though we used mostly the Broadway arrangements, we, we used a much expanded orchestra in terms of numbers. So we used a big string section. We had individual wind players and sax players, so everyone was a specialist on their instrument and not a doubler. And, uh, and, and we use the large string section so that we could fill the screen. And so there's still that traditional sound of the original Broadway arrangements, which is wonderful, it's really great. But uh, there's also the ability to fill the room with, in terms of the Atmos rear and top and side speakers, which we recorded, we recorded Atmos ambient tracks on the sessions in New York. And we mixed it with, with an, an ear to really kind of filling the space. And I think Andy did a great job, also in in get in the placement of of uh, of the fronts and side and rear speakers and getting it all balanced. So it just invisibly fills the room. It just in, in envelops you, and you couple that to the match of the of the dialogue and the music, and it really is kind of a it's a wonderful seamless uh, presentation. I think it works great. What's interesting
3: What's interesting is that when it came to me. We had four songs that they wanted to do live. So I guess in the very original part of it, you know, they wanted to go really with the traditional more playback style. But then as as Susan got as as, pardon me, as Steven got more into it, um, you know, he really felt like the actors could sing, the actors had great voices, and there were a couple of moments, and those those intimate moments are the ones where you really want to get them live. So we did end up doing quite a bit more live than I think we ever expected to, always with the option of being able to go back to playback. So whenever we would do it live, they would wear little earpieces. So they would hear themselves and they would hear the music and they would always sing to themselves. So you always have the option then in post to go back in. And I would always keep them wired no matter what, whether they're doing playback or, or obviously live, but there were always that reference track so that you could help keep them in sync the entire time. So. Um, Yeah, Stephen definitely wanted to play as much live as he could, but we would always go back and forth. When we were filming, we would do two takes live, two takes playback, two takes live, two takes playback. That actually raises another question I want to jump in with for you,
0: Todd, which is what involvement do you have, if any, in the pre-records? Are you there for those? And is there anything you're doing there that either, you know what I mean?
3: Yes, I'm actually there from, from the beginning of the pre records. And one of the things that I learned early on, all the way back from the doors, is that it, basically what Sean was talking about before, that jumping in and out of dialogue into pre recorded vocals. And that's one of the most jarring things in a musical. And one of the things that always disturbed me the most. So, in finding ways to deal with that, one of them was, was to use, take the lavalier that I use on set. Also take the boom mic that I use on set, add those into the pre-recorded vocal booth so that now you have three vocal recordings of the actors. So if I'm using a wireless on the set and they go into the song, you can start with the wireless and then transition into the big fat studio microphone so it doesn't sound like you were sonically transported into you know some beautiful space on its own.
4: Mm, oh it. interesting Todd. Um, and Jim, what I did was a little different on this one that I haven't done on any other, other, any other musical that I've worked on, was that because of the beautiful way that the script allowed for a dialogue scene, for a song to emerge from the natural dialogue within a scene, um, I mixed it actually so that I would create the sound around the dialogue that I wanted for that scene, and then I would go straight into mixing the vocals. I didn't even switch the music on at that point. I literally wanted the vocal to be a natural extension of the dialogue within the scene. And I would go right through a song and get that the way I wanted it before I'd even switch the music on. And then of course we would balance after that, but at least the scene had been created. And that was the luxury of having the type of script that allowed for that. And the range of microphone choices that Todd was saying um, that uh, allowed me to do that. And I think that's why the transitions were, were, were very smooth. That's interesting.
5: And just to brag on Todd, too, um, one of the things that I, I got from Todd when we first when I first started was uh, I emailed Todd. And um, oftentimes when we start a film, we communicate with the production mixer and we get the list of microphones, you know, the one lav the one boom that they used. And then we try to match that with ADR or whatever. But um, uh, from Todd, I got a massive like the best email I'd ever gotten from <laughs> which was every single actor he had gone through and tested all the different labs with every single actor. And he had like a roadmap of everything that he had done. Um, and like that kind of pre-production work was, was really impressive and, and really great and really helpful.
3: <coughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I learned about only about six or seven years ago is that every different actor sounds different on a lavalier. <laughs> so I could be playing them on a boom And then I would have a lavalier on them and they would sound so radically different. And then there was one time where I had one microphone and it was off on somebody else and I had to put a different microphone on that person and they sounded entirely different. And I realized from that point on that lavaliers have so much characteristic To themselves. So what I do now, whenever I start a movie now, is I line up six different lavaliers, like a Sanken, a Shure, Sennheiser. I line them up all on a little bar. I put them right at chest height, and I have my boom microphone overhead, and I have them sing a little bit and I have them talk a little bit, and then I'll go back later and I'll AB them to the boom mic because the boom then is also the best match for the studio microphone. So once I can match it out, then I send that microphone. To the pre records. So then they would use that microphone with that particular actor for all their vocal pre records. And that that raises another question I had
0: thinking, you know, watching the movie last night, it occurred to me that this must have been a massive challenge just from the point of view of how many characters are in this thing. I mean, you've got scenes with dozens and dozens of people. So I just, as you were describing that process of testing the mics, I'm thinking of you having to do that for in some scenes, you know, like I say, maybe a couple of dozen. Uh, people, so talk a little bit about the challenges of onset. You know, mixing with that large a cast, and then maybe we can move to everybody else talking a little bit about uh, the challenges
3: of that in the you know in the final mix. Sure. So when I first got the script from Tony Kushner, it was it, gigantic. I mean, it's a it's a masterpiece, but it was huge. Twenty two actors in multiple scenes, singing, dancing, fighting, talking. So I realized at that point that to to quote a famous Spielbergian quote, that I'm going to need a bigger boat. So I I built a new sound card from the ground up just for West Side Story. So I brought in all the different wireless manufacturers and we tested them all out, and we ended up with Shore, which actually ended up being excellent. I I was incredibly surprised at how well they are, but. it was the whole sound cart was really built around wireless. So I was wiring 24 people a day, many times. And then I would have all sorts of, of monitoring systems, like the music department would need a special monitoring system where they would hear live vocals in one ear and playback in the other ear so that they could tell if they're in sync. Steven would have his own mix and then my boom men would have their own mix. And then I would have little wireless speakers that we would put out around the actors, always trying to keep the speakers as close to the actors as possible. So there's no time delay. So we would take little wireless speakers and we would put them all around wherever the scene was, which was challenging with this because sometimes scenes went for great distances. So it was, it was quite a challenge, you know, and, and mixing for that many people and all of that. I mean, it's obviously very good to have ISO tracks that you guys can go back into later and pull it all apart. But, you know, when you're trying to do a fly, a mix on the fly like that, it was the most challenging thing I've ever done. Well, and for the,
0: in terms of the mix, what were the kind of guiding principles for whoever this is appropriate to answer uh, what were the kind of guiding principles for these scenes where you've got you know a couple dozen characters? Because uh, you know, I feel like you did a great job of directing the viewer's ear, so that we're always hearing who we're supposed to hear, but it's not unrealistic. You're not unrealistically stripping out all of the other crowd noise and all that. That would be Andy
4: and Brian, really. I mean, um, I loved having all the selection because it meant we could, you know, literally I could just go through each scene and 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 pick and choose who we wanted to feature at any one moment, um, particularly though in the vocal scenes where where uh, in the jet song, for instance, I loved having all the separation because you know, we could kind of move people around so that they became wider and more sterilized, even though they were just sort of single mono channels, just to um, continue that creation of the illusion of them all uh, actually, you know, being um, on set and with the separation. So I was in love with having this many mics, to be honest. Now Brian, who had to edit that, might disagree, but uh, for me, it <laughs> no, was a lo- tremendous help. I think no, Brian I loved it fun. too. Yeah. I loved it too. Oh yeah, no, because
5: because of all the work that Todd was able to do, then I was able to take everything and have that separation. And like the scene um, after um, the intro, where the jets are all together in the construction site after after um, Shrank and Krupke leave. Um, you know, they're all talking and and they all have their own little conversations going about Puerto Rico's a state or what are we going to do about the rumble, all that kind of stuff. And that's all because of all the mic work that Todd was able to do. Then I was able to prepare it and, you know, clean it up and get it clear. And then Andy could
3: have it in the mix and have it where he needed to be.
5: You know,
0: yeah. Andy, I'm, Oh, go ahead.
3: No, no, there were a lot of microphones. I always tried to do things like for Gary, I'd always try to like, if there were cars going by or if there were like any type of period piece prop or anything that was going on, we'd always, we'd have like four different microphones that we'd have set up to kind of throw out just to capture sounds whenever we saw them. So if there was a car going on the right, we'd throw a microphone over there. If there were kids playing with a machine or something, we'd throw a mic over there. So we'd always try to capture literally just as many things as possible i think i threw more microphones at post-production than ever (laughs) movie i definitely used i definitely used more
1: microphones than i'd ever used before but it it brings up todd you can talk about too you had this great idea that we did it's in the movie to to a a great extent but you had them record or you recorded the dancing without the music playback in which we used for some of the the main dance sequences in addition to foley because we had a foley people but that was a great idea to record something on the set and steven was gracious enough to give you the time to do it so because i wanted to be true to the justin peck choreography and to the performance of the dancers and so i'd never done that before that was your suggestion so thanks for that that helped a lot so they literally
5: they literally did a take of the dance scene with just just dancing no other music playback or anything else so for instance,
3: that. yeah, for instance, in the big dance scene in the gym, where everything is on speakers, so obviously we're just blasting with speakers, but that annihilates any possibility of getting any kind of real Foley track or anything. So we ended up giving out earphones to every major dancer, and we ran the entire scene again without any vocalization, just all of their dance moves, any of their little hoot and howls, and all the little ad lib things that they did. And then we had three booms following them around and microphones planted around. So that was that is the answer to dealing with scenes. So in the old days, when they just used to only do playback on sets, this is the one way now to give yourself kind of an in-sync fully track and ambience track, you know, to the entire scene. And it gives it that kind of life. It, it, I'll just
1: I'll point out everything we've been talking about lately, what the effect of it is for an audience is you believe that. The singing is happening at the time of the shoot, that the, the the dancing is is for real. So this movie, even though it's old fashioned in some ways, the, the 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 approach to the sound was very modern, but it made it feel like you saw everything as real. So, you know, they were really singing, they were really dancing, they're really in New York City, they were really performing live. It felt live. It felt it had none of that artificial feeling where you kind of pop into a musical feeling and all those things we've been talking about, everything is to the to the effect of making you believe the reality of the moment, which I think was, right. is really unique to this approach to a musical and to West Side Story, as old-fashioned as it is in some ways. But you believe every moment is real. But it's interesting, Gary, you say that, because when I was talking earlier about blending in
4: the vocals to the dialogue, it it wasn't just me matching and blending vocals into dialogue. It was the ability to have all your sound effects material go right through the sequence as well so that the minute it transitioned into a song the the sounds of the the body movements and the footsteps and everything that you'd had in the sequence up to that point just continued on and uh, and that created that illusion perfectly
1: yeah and the
3: actors and the actors really sang too i mean no matter whether we were doing playback or not the actors sang full out. You know that was one of that's one of the things with lip syncing. You have to have them sing as if they were truly singing. You can always tell when somebody's lip syncing, yeah. but in in our film, you, it's very difficult to tell when they're not really singing and they are lip syncing. Yeah. Uh, well, Andy,
0: I was curious just hearing all this talk about the pre records and making it seem like they're they're singing live. Uh, I know you also worked on Les Miserables, which was pretty much all just sung live on set. And here it sounds like there was a little bit of that. What are the challenges for you when you are dealing with material where it is recorded live on set?
4: I love live on set. I mean, before, you know, Stephen and I actually had a conversation about this because he knew I'd done a few different musicals and we talked about all these challenges before he went and shot it. And I, I was a huge supporter of doing anything possible live. I think there's an immediacy and something special. Uh, now, I, I really truly believe in this film. You can't tell the difference between playback and live. I really believe that. And I've never felt that before. But um, I still love it when they go live. I think there's a, there's a sort of a, an incredible power that comes off. I mean, the, 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 the last song in particular, a uh, boy like that is 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 like opera. It's extraordinary, and uh, and the emotion that comes out of it. I mean, the the problem with, you know, the difference obviously between this and Les, Les Mis, for instance, is Les Mis was 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 more free form, in the sense that they weren't they were singing to without click tracks or, or or a pre-recorded music. So it it was it had lots of other challenges, but. Um, for me, the blend of playback songs and live songs is, is a joy when it works and it works because of, uh, everything that, you know, as Todd has been talking about has uh, helped that tremendously. And, and for me having, you know, the, the, the music when Sean was talking about the music, I mean, to mix this in Atmos, which Steven loves by the way, um, to be able to bring the music off the screen and surround yourself with it a bit more was so um, powerful, I think, and it it allowed us to, to um, explore, it it became as if I I was trying to make it seem as if the orchestra was actually in the room, in some ways, just to feel the presence and power of it, that it was never coming from behind a screen. And um, I, I I hope that came through, because that was definitely what I was aiming to do.
0: Yeah, I I definitely felt that I felt that way watching it last night. And Todd, Todd brought up the uh, you know, recording period sounds, which leads me to another question kind of for everybody, uh, which is how does the fact that this is a period movie inform your approach? I mean, you know, Sean, maybe this is a dumb question, but I mean, does the fact that it's a period film, do you approach the music differently than you would if it was a contemporary film?
2: You know, we, I would say we did not. Uh, we, 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 pr- we produced it more or less as a traditional orchestra which which certainly doesn't uh, you know connotate a, a a modern sound it's a traditional orchestral sound i think one of the things we wanted out of this recording was to hear a lot of the detail in the orchestration and the composition which has never been heard before there's a lot of wonderful material in the in in original west side stories uh, scores which we had uh, which you look at it and you say gosh i 've never heard that i 've never uh, you know it 's been there forever it 's been there since day one but i 've never heard it uh, often covered by uh, either the recording or or ambience or vocals and I thought it would be great if we could have enough detail musical detail so that we could hear some of that. I think we accomplished a lot of that I think there 's a lot of that to be heard uh, but not distractingly uh in in the in the production of the music um, and I think the uh, just to to jump back a little bit into the the matching, I think one thing that happened in our in our orchestral pre records with Gustavo Dudamel is uh, he conducted a lot of these pieces without a click track. Uh, the original pre records were done to a tempo that was set by Janine and Dave Newman and, and Stephen, of course, but that a lot of the sections were conducted without click and were free timed. And then and then played back on the set, and the and the actors all, uh, had done their pre-records to this, and they knew they knew what that tempo was, but but what happens in the in the course of production is, you know, edits edits get made, things get changed, things get moved around a bit, and so we have to conform that track uh, to what actually happened, to to what got shot and what what got cut and uh and i've got to just hand it to the guys that did the editing of music tracks and vocal tracks to make the whole thing sound really musical as well as perfectly in sync and perfectly matching because it's not an easy thing to take what the picture department has done and put the track to it and make it still sound like it's real music uh it it doesn't just fall in that way it has to be done really skillfully and it
1: it, i think the guys did a great job on this one definitely the, the, period, the period thing you talked about is, is was a lot of that was my uh, problem, you know, to make it sound like it's the 1950s New York. I have often said, as a sound effects guy, I think the world sounded better in the past. I mean, the sirens sound great before they became electronic sirens and the horn honks and the cars and the kind of the richness of New York from the 50s, not to mention the fact that we've got kind of a background track of demolition going on in this neighborhood, which is part of the storytelling. But, you know. New York, 1950s New York. I'm, t- I'm sorry to tell you, it sounds better than 1990s New York or 2020s New York. So um, that was that's that's the purview of uh, sound effects and and the the dialogue, the acting, the the accents, and that kind of stuff. Which I think we took a lot of care to make that accurate as well.
5: We definitely did take a lot of care, even on you know like certain phrases that the Puerto Rican neighborhoods would have used in the 50s that they are different now um with our with our loop group crowds and, and our actors and things like that we're really you know authenticity was the was definitely on our minds the whole time. Yeah
0: that speaks to another thing I noticed about the movie watching it last night which is that again even though it delivers as a kind of stylized musical it's also very grounded in reality. And I think a lot of that grounding comes from the sound, I mean, I feel like throughout the film, you always feel the presence of the outside world, even in the musical numbers, it's subtle, but it's there. And uh, I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that was important that, you know, because the the setting of it is as important. And there are scenes without music, like the rumble, um, which, uh, you know, I think there's a not only a realism, but a brutality to the sounds of the fight, the knife fight and the fist, you know, the, the punches and the, there's a grittiness to that that uh, was important to the story. It's important that this be dangerous and and you know, um, uh, so that that's part of the role that that we played. But yeah, there's the, everything kind of went together. So the realism we talked about, where you believe these are people really singing and performing or singing on in a location in a real location. And that allowed the rest of the track to be realistic in a way that it wouldn't have been able to do if it sounded like an old-fashioned musical, which is very studio kind of feel to it. So the, the reality of it that started with Todd and came, you know, the reality of, of the singing and the music added, you know, to w- what we could do with the sound effects and the audiences to make it as realistic as possible. Actually, I think that's a real um, it's a it's something that the movie does really well, which is it there's it balances realism and 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 the you know, kind of the stylized musical aspect. They they both are there in equal measure. And I will point out something because we we talked about all the stuff that we've done technically to make all this stuff after the fact, but it was built into, as Todd said, even the script, the way the transitions work. It was built into the way that Steven shot transitions and moments. So it had kind of gave us opportunities to do things. I love that you look at scenes like the opening scene where they're passing the paint cans around, the timing of the catching and the throwing of the paint cans is in sync with the music. It's, it's amazing. So, you know, they took the time to choreograph not just the dancing, but the actions on set for scenes like that, or the cool scene or something like this. So the actions were in sync to the music as well as the singing. So everything is integrated. And a lot of that is is that, you know, was done by Steven and the people on, on set.
3: Yeah, that was that was really, you're right, built in from the very beginning. We were giving out up to 50 earwigs, you know, um, a day to actors just for simple scenes like that, where where again, just throwing paint cans or when throwing the garbage cans, where everything was was to the music. So the only way we could do it and capture the real effects at the same time was to give everybody earpieces. So they ended up getting very, very comfortable wearing these little tiny earwigs, you know, throughout most of the movie. That uh, sense of realism that Gary talked about, it seems to me also comes
0: from the fact that Uh, To my eye anyway, and I could be wrong, but it seemed like a fairly substantial amount of the movie was shot on location, and uh, if that's true, uh, I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, Todd, from your point of view, uh, the kind of, well, actually everybody, just what you think, what are the challenges, but what do you think it gives you
3: uh, shooting that much of the movie on location? I'll start off. I think that, you know, first of all, you have the reality of it and that's what Stephen really wanted. And for us um, on production, it was basically like taking a Broadway show on the road because we would do pretty much the same thing except having a live orchestra. That would be the only thing that would be different, but otherwise we would have everybody wired. I'd have three or four booms running around capturing every kind of sound effect and and as much dialogue as we could possibly capture. and then you're in the heat. I mean, it was a brutally hot summer that I, I, don't know if everybody remembers, but there was actually one day we had to shut down because the temperatures were hundred degrees. And you have all these people dancing in the street, but it was brutally hot through most of that summer. So I think the reality of that heat also brings an energy to the actors. And I think it brings an energy to the feeling of the film, too, because you can see it in them. You can see, you know, the exhaustion in them. And that's what summer, that's what a New York summer does to you. It exhausts you. But weren't so- their weren't, weren't shoes, I mean, the
5: dancer's shoes were melting on the street?
3: There were and and Giannis used so many lights. I've never seen so many lights in my entire life. There's one scene where they have the where they have an the initial fight when Shrank comes in, and we had so many lights on one side of the camera that all of the sharks had suntan sunburned sides from here to here, and all the jets had it from here to here because they were facing each other and all the lights were coming this way. It was just it was amazing the amount of light that, that we used, But um, but the realism is all there, you know, and Stephen wanted every little bit of it. So it was it was pretty great. I mean, it's that's the best way to make a movie, I think.
1: And hearing these stories about the heat and the lights and the difficulty on set is exactly why I went into post production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you yeah. on that, Gary. Air conditioned. It's all good.
5: Well, but you also it's funny you mentioned that, Todd, because I was thinking about the traditional problems that we have on set with recording dialogue and on all the that comes up. But you also have a filmmaker and a production that cares about sound so much that, you know, I didn't hear a single generator hum
3: in any of that stuff. No, nice. we fought, I fought very hard. The one place I had generator issues was actually inside of the salt shed because we had so many lights there. They had right. these massive generators that they brought in and we made them bring in hay bales to make a hay bale wall in front of this generator system that they had just to keep it outside of the salt shed.
1: It's funny because in the in the salt shed scene, I, as the effects person, I added a sort of electrical hum to it for, for, oh, I, for the lights. <laughs> it's hard to tell you Tom, but I added one artificially.
3: Sorry. Don't tell the producer that because it was great expense to get this little- Yeah, angle. no, we won't let them, we won't <laughs> let them hear that part. The dialogue sounds very clean. It's great. Yes. Yeah. The fight sounded great. The fight sounded really, really yeah. great. I have to say, the mm-hmm. rumble was amazing.
1: Yeah, you want it to be, you want it to be, you want to feel that Tony can really kill a guy. Right, so, and, and you know, people die in that fight. It's, it's, a, it's a real turning point in the movie and it has to be, um, you know, we, we can talk tonally. What's funny in the movie, we, had, we went from that fight, the brutality of that fight to I Feel Pretty is, is a, an interesting tonal transition in the way. And we can talk about how in the, in the Broadway version, the intermission separated those two, but the movie has to go from the tone of two deaths in the salt shed to I feel pretty which is a was an interesting switch to have to make.
0: Yeah, how did you guys approach that switch because that when now that you say it I I'm realizing how audacious that is but when I was watching the movie I completely bought it I went right with it. I
4: don't know how we do it Andy. <laughs> uh, I, I remember it was well, you know, we went very quiet at the end. We went to music only at the very end That final top shot looking down on the two bodies was was was, was very very sparse. There was a bell I think which originally was a little bit longer. We kept it a little shorter. Um, we just tried to make the transition as gentle as it could be because you know you, you had to go out from the fury of what you've just seen into something so so tonally different. And um, we played around with it for a bit, but it was it was really about taking things out and becoming very sparse for that moment. I think that that allowed you to have your you know, the moment of sort of grief before you. You 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 are swung into the into a completely different scene. So. Yeah, the,
1: the church bell, which has always been part of it, the the bell tolls at the end. And we take out the realistic effects, including the the police showing up, and even take out the realistic effects of the city street outside of the of the, the store. Awesome. Bring reality back, so you kind of just give the audience a, a bit of a. So it's, it's like what score does all the time. You give the audience a moment to reflect and to feel something and not to pay attention to the reality on the screen necessarily, but to feel something and that takes them into the next scene.
0: We're actually at the end of the time. So um, I could talk to you guys about this movie all day, but uh, we're out of time. So I just want to thank you for coming and talking with me about it. And thanks everybody out there for uh, listening. Uh, it's been fantastic.
1: Thank you. Thank thanks you guys. Thank you very much. Good to see everybody.